Today on the Bill Kelly Podcast, part of the crisis in health care may be resolved if we can get more internationally trained nurses accredited. They're already here in the tens of thousands. Retail therapy is getting more expensive. The OPP cracking down on street racing and those who think they've been added to the cast of Fast and Furious. And we'll ask an expert if there are signs that some of the powerful in Russia are preparing for a time after Vladimir Putin. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts right now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. There are continued signs that Ontario's hospitals are on the brink. Certainly, the staff is. We've always viewed our work and our career as being one that is available for you 24-7, no matter what, any time of day. However, we're seeing that we're not able to deliver on that promise anymore. That's an ER medical professional concerned about shortened hours and outright closures. Last week on the show, we were outlining what's happening in rural ERs in Ontario. And at the time, I asked if the situation in rural hospitals could be a warning of what might be happening in urban centres as well. Nurses and doctors have been reaching out on social media to outline just how bad it is in hospitals, and not just ERs, in ICUs as well. They're burned out, they're short-staffed. And joining us now is the president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, Dr. Claudette Holloway. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. What have you been hearing from nurses about the situations in hospitals? Well, we're hearing that they continue to uh, not have their calls met by our our government in terms of repealing Bill 124 that would, um, you know, allow them to earn a fair wage. We're hearing from them that they are burnt out, that uh, they are at their wit's end, um, that they, you know, being asked to stay extra shifts because there are not enough staff. We're hearing that they are... Uh, people who are going off sick and they, you know, they need to be, um, have time. They need to have 10 days, but they don't have the provision for those 10 days. Um, so the situation is, it is collapsing. Um, we can see it. Uh, it came from the rural areas and now we have it here in hospitals. And our hospitals, we should be able to depend on them. And we have to remember that this affects all of healthcare. But mostly we're seeing this effect now in hospitals. Well, one of the things that's been suggested uh, a few times, certainly, uh, is getting more internationally trained nurses who are in Ontario certified to be able to go into the hospitals. Yes, we have uh, 14,000 registered nurses in Ontario that are eligible, um, but we need to have them processed and in a timely manner so that they can come and help this critical situation. It seems a shame that we are not able to process them in a timely fashion. So we really need um, help for our College of Nurses to um, clear the backlog so that they can get on. We need um, our retired nurses who are quite able to mentor to come back, and we have a, need a strategy to support that so that they can come back and help mentor them into the workplace. So it is Um, a a complex issue, but certainly the internationally educated nurses can certainly make a big contribution here if we can get them on board in a timely fashion. Dr. Holloway, how long a process is it for an internationally trained nurse to become accredited? Well, from what we've we've heard in the the news, that it can take anywhere from months to years. So, um, you know, 
there are already registered nurses from their uh, their countries, and we know that they have to go through certain uh, processes with our College of Nurses. But, you know, having a range of months to three years or more, uh, that seems to be unreasonable. So, you know, we need to do all we can to expedite the process. I understand there are, what, eight different areas where accreditation needs to be uh, made? Yes, and those details are found on our College of Nurses website. Um, and, we, you know, we don't want to short-circuit um, what requirements are, are needed by the um, internationally educated nurses, but we certainly need to have more of them processed in a more timely fashion. Uh, you mentioned that there are 14,000 registered nurses that are internationally trained and uh, could be in the system fairly quickly. There are about 23,000 nurses total, uh, not necessarily registered nurses, that could also be available. Yes, and um, <clears throat> we know that uh, out of all of those, um, yes, we, we, you know, we want to have all nurses available, but we're mostly concerned right now about our registered nurses. So we really need to get those 14,000 uh, processed. And, and, you know, we know that the College of, already, um, College of Nurses of Ontario have already processed over 3,000, but, you know, we have so many more. So while we're staring down this uh, a dark place where we don't have enough staff, let's do what we can to get these nurses who are uh, being processed in the system. You know, let's just get this process expedited. You've probably heard this pushback before, so I'm going to give you the opportunity to address it. Uh, there are some concerns that it might be a lowering of standards to speed up the accreditation process. I don't believe that's, a, that's true. Um, where, as, a, as I said, we don't want to short-circuit the system, but you know, we can have them with the equal uh, quality that they bring, um, but we just need to make that process, make that process faster. We're not, we're not here to lower the standards of healthcare in Ontario, but certainly we can do more to get things speeded up. Joining us is Dr. Claudette Holloway, who's the president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. Dr. Holloway, a couple of months ago, your organization issued a report which found that the backlog of internationally educated nurse applicants in Ontario has been growing for a decade and has only escalated during the pandemic. That, that's correct. And I just want to say that I am currently the, the president. I finished my president-elect term last year. Um, but that's true. Um, a lot of the issues that we're seeing now in healthcare have been uh, magnified because of the pandemic. But RNAO and many other health professionals have been calling out for action for a long time. So it's now just made worse by the pandemic. So we can't blame it all entirely on the pandemic. We need to have... Um, some real action to have nurses at the table where the decisions are made. We need to repeal Bill 124. Um, we need uh, funding to support um, our retired nurses to come back and mentor. And so it's a complex issue, but you, you are correct that the internationally educated nurses can play a big role in helping us through at this time. And this situation is likely only to get worse before it gets better. There was another report released in June saying, what, one in four nurses plan to quit in the next three years? Nurses are, you know, they are going uh, south of the border. They're going to other provinces, mostly because they feel uh, disrespected by their, their wage cap um, and trying to cope with the rising inflation uh, that they have to, you know, manage their daily affairs. 
Um, yes, nurses are retiring, um, but we can use those in mentoring. We can get them back. But people want to have more control over their work lives. They want to feel supported. Um, they need to also uh, be able to take t- sick time and have you know compensation for that. So it, this, these are complex issues, but they are solvable. And RNAL has put out a number of recommendations that we're willing to work with the government and other health professionals to bring, uh, you know, a solution. There are many solutions that we, we can work with them, but we need to see some action from our, uh, our government officials who can actually make these things happen. The recommendations that you've put out to the government for how, you know, um, a faster accreditation process can happen and more of these internationally trained nurses can be uh, on the floors and included in our healthcare system. What feedback have you had so far from the government on those recommendations? Well, we are still waiting to hear uh, what they intend to do. Um, we don't have any clear messages. Um, so we want to get some, we want to get some clear messages. We want to be engaged in the process. We're willing to uh, to work with the government. So uh, the ball is really in their court. We're doing all we can. Nurses are you know working double shifts. They can't leave. The the they are taking more than they have to uh, in terms of client load, patient load, and this cannot continue. They you know we're putting them in a position where they cannot deliver the quality care. That they want, and this this healthcare issue concerns us all. Um, you needn't think that it's just because people who are sick. We never know who is going to be sick. We also have to remember that the pandemic is not over, so we need uh, all the processes in place to uh, address this issue because it affects us all, and Ontarians deserve better care. Well, Dr. Holloway, one of the things that uh, I've been seeing and reading, uh, certainly when you speak about how the um, uh, the pandemic is not over. We're in the seventh wave of uh, COVID-19 right now. We've been seeing reports in both Hamilton and London, the two markets in which this program is heard, um, that the stress on the hospitals is only going up, the demand only going up, and, uh, and this really needs to be addressed. Well, we need to go back to the, uh, the mask mandate for, you know, indoor and crowded places. Um, because we need to stem that flow. If, you know, if we don't uh, heed these public health measures, basic public health measures of masking, social distancing, and use of vaccines, then, of course, as you're saying, you know, that load is going to continue. So we need to do our best to stem the flow. Give the nurses who are uh, in hospital, give them a chance to recover um, from what they're facing so that we, we're not adding to the load of the system. So everyone can play their part. Everyone can go to their member of provincial parliament and knock on the door and be very loud in saying, look, we need to have something done about this healthcare system. This is not what we signed up for. Uh, this is not uh, what Ontarians deserve. We need better. And our politicians need to do their part. In terms of getting um, internationally um, trained nurses accredited and into the, uh, the system quickly, have you been speaking, has your organization been speaking uh, with uh, the CEOs of the healthcare systems in Ontario? And how fast, uh, what reaction do they have? How fast could this happen? Well, I'm not aware of any uh, particular conversations with CEOs, um, but certainly from RNL, we're always advocating at a policy level, and we uh, continue to, you know, challenge our government to, to hear our pleas. And again, we have, we have 
all the research that we've put into reports, RNAO staff and our CEO, Dr. Doris Grinspan. We've got all the solutions that we have are thoroughly researched and they're available. So there's no need to reinvent the wheel. Let's work together. Let's sit down and let's get some real action going. When you're talking about the pressure that nurses have been under, I've seen a lot of social media posts from nurses basically begging for help, that they're so short-staffed. As you mentioned earlier, they're working uh, sometimes double shifts. Sometimes there's only one nurse for 30 patients in a ward. I saw one post where it was an ICU situation. They were trying to transfer some patients out, but they couldn't because where they were trying to transfer them to, they were running into the same problem. And, and that's right. And this, 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 cannot, this is not sustainable. This cannot continue. That's why nurses are trying to do their best to, to manage. And they're, they're, uh, some of them are saying, well, you know, I, I can't do it anymore. Um, but we're, we're really affecting the quality of care. We are putting nurses in a very compromising position, and this is, not, this is certainly not fair. Um, we've been sounding the alarm for so long. Um, so we really appreciate the help that the media has given us, these interviews that we've had, radio and television. We really appreciate that you're helping us to get the message out. Um, we, uh, every, we have action alerts where people can sign. We need every single Ontarian that um, would need health care. If it's not you that needs your health care, it may be your family member, your friends. You know, we all need to make this very clear that it, it cannot continue. This is absolutely critical. We're in the danger zone here. Dr. Holloway, as somebody who has been um, a consumer and a caregiver, uh, to those who have had to access the healthcare system on an emergency basis, uh, sometimes for chronic illnesses as well. I know how important good nurses are on the floor of any hospital. I can say without doubt, they have saved my husband's life on more than one occasion. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm an internationally educated uh, nurse myself. I've been in the country many years. Um, so <clears throat> we need to understand that when you receive a, an internationally educated nurse, your standards have not gone down. I don't know why people seem to think that. Um, <clears throat> but we come and we meet all the requirements in this country and we're able to practice and we're able to do so safely. So it is so important that we uh, bring on board our internationally educated nurses along with those who have already, you know, born, raised and, and, and educated here in the country. Um, so we have one system, but we know that um, we have registered nurses who have had that um, additional uh, education that they are a very important part of the care uh, that our, our patients in hospital receive, our clients receive in the community. Um, we know that we have to have a, 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 a scope of practice for registered nurses and um, there's registered practical nurses, but we don't want to uh, say that, you know, I've heard the story about people wanting to take uh, nurses who are internationally trained before they've got their qualifications and put them to work as uh, personal support workers. That is not what we're trying to do. It must we be... want to have our internationally educated nurses go through the system. They're doing the best they can. Let those that are processing their uh, applications do so in a timely fashion so that they can get into the workforce. It must be so frustrating for those nurses who are awaiting their accreditation to see that we are in uh, this dangerous situation, as you put it, 
and and they can't get in there and help when that's all they want to do. Yes, and that's something that we need to look at. Why why is that? We need to ask our government why is that. We need to ask our our member of provincial parliament why is this happening? Because they're they're living in their in their constituencies. Um, wh- like why is this happening? We need we need to get some answers. We need to hear from the government. I know it's summer and everybody is kind of. Uh, taking a, 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 you know, maybe a little bit of a break, but pa- the pandemic is not taking a break. Nurses haven't been able to take a break. They haven't been able to take their vacation. They're having to work longer hours than they ever signed up for. They're being put in a compromising position to deliver quality care. This is not su- sustainable. I've heard many say that this is absolutely madness. We don't want to uh, be known in, uh, in the world as a province where we have madness for our healthcare system. We need to have um, effective policy. We need to have uh, consistency. We need to have timeliness so that um, this uh, province where many people come from all over the world, that we have a system that is uh, uh, supportive and that delivers quality care. And we cannot deliver quality care the rate that we're going on. Dr. Holloway, thank you so much for your time, and hopefully uh, this will help make a difference. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. Dr. Claudette Holloway is the president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Who doesn't love a little bit of retail therapy? Well, it probably isn't happening as much as you'd like it to, at least not uh, for a while. The ripple effects of increasing inflation are continuing. Grocery store, gas station, those are the most obvious places where it's being felt. Here's Adam Burns with the most recent numbers from StatsCan. Stackham reports that the year-over-year inflation rate hit 8.1% in June, its largest yearly change since January of 1983. It's the second straight month the number hit a 39-year high after inflation reached 7.7% in May. Stackham says price acceleration was mostly a result of soaring gas prices in June. They were up more than 50% compared to a year earlier. As the cost of living continues to rise, wages in Canada aren't keeping up. They rose just 5.2% in June. Adam Burns, the Canadian Press. But it is also being noticed in other ways and in other places. Bruce Winster, Winder rather, is a retail analyst. He's also co-founder and partner of the Retail Advisors Network. Thanks for joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And thanks for the free advice. It may be the only thing that's still affordable. That's true. No problem. <laughs> okay. Uh, companies like McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Kimberly Clark, makers of toilet paper and disposable diapers, they're all hiking prices. Is this a sign that inflation is going to be with us for a while? Yeah, I think it's going to be with us for a while still, maybe another couple of years, uh, because, you know, the, the the inputs into why inflation is so high. These are global issues, everything from the pandemic and the impact it's had on supply chains, commodity prices, and of course, the war in Russia and Ukraine. Um, these, these are all sort of big things that uh, have, have materially changed the input prices. And this isn't probably going away, you know, anytime in the near future. Earlier this week, Walmart Walmart lowered its profit outlook for the year, setting gas prices and other hikes for a change in shoppers' habits, meaning that people are cutting back on other things in order to pay for essentials. 
Yeah, what happened with Walmart is they, uh, they've noticed that people, to your point, you know, they have to prioritize their spending. They're spending less on discretionary items and more on consumables like food. And uh, Walmart uh, has a bit of an inventory glut on apparel and some general merchandise that was brought in. And now they have to mark it down. So hopefully at least consumers will see some markdown prices in store. It also uh, hit Walmart right in the stock price. It did, yeah. Walmart, they're not the only one. You know, Target's been under some uh, threats as well. We also had uh, the big news story this week with Shopify. And uh, the news just keeps getting bad in terms of retail right now. Uh, There are some bright spots like Lululemon and Aritzia and things like that. But most of the sort of uh, traditional retailers are having a bit of a, a tough moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought up Shopify because that was certainly a, a key news story this week. They said that they just completely read the horizon wrong. They did, and they're not the only one. You know, a number of companies made some bets based on uh, the notion that e-commerce would continue off um, based on where it was in the pandemic. And uh, obviously, it hasn't really happened yet that way. So, um, you know, to their credit, at least they admitted it and they're going to, you know, make some changes. Um, And, you know, every company has adversity, right? I mean, Shopify has been a bit of a darling for a number of years. This is their first uh, sort of area of adversity, but I think they'll get through it. You know, I think they're going to be okay. Well, there was a story earlier this week uh, that uh, was a survey of what people were going to be doing and how they were going to be spending their money in terms of vacations and and what they wanted to do this summer. The cost of everything, of course, going up, probably spending $400 more this year than last year. um, And that was because the cost of everything is higher. But one of the other things that was in this study was that people were hoping for more of an experience uh, this summer and that they were willing to pay for that. And I think that relates to this story insofar as people want to go back into stores. They want to have that retail experience. Yeah, you're right. And that's bang on. I mean, you know, people have been cooped up, call it for two years off and on, and they want to get out. They want to get out and have some experiences, whether it's traveling. You know, we've seen the congestion at the airports, um, as well as getting out and getting into malls again and shopping and walking around experiencing retail. And, um, you know, they have to prioritize. So they're buying less hard lines, you know, less products. We had products, uh, you know, bought during the pandemic, outdoor products. So you don't really need them anymore. Consumers don't need those. They want to reallocate their spending to experiences and travel. Well, yeah, and there are some things that I'm just not going to buy online. I have really weird feet. I love shoes. I need to try them on. Yeah, definitely. There's certain categories that, uh, believe it or not, footwear... Um, was one of the categories that people thought would never make it online. Believe it or not, it's a major category online. But you know what? Um, people are going to prioritize. You know, maybe, maybe you know, for someone like you, you got to get in store. And for other people, it's it's just the fact they want to get out again. They want to get out. They want to sort of pretend, you know, it's life before the pandemic and see people go to food courts, you know, socialize, talk to people. It's just part of who we are as humans. We're pack animals. Yeah, still, that is very true. Uh, A little bit of uh, thinning out of the herd is what I need to do uh, when I'm off in a couple of weeks. But um, with the retail versus online experience, some of the discount stores that I think people are going to be gravitating more towards because things are getting tight, places like Winners and Dollar Stores, you can't buy any of their stock online. So it may be more of an option. It's true. And uh, that, you're right about th- those chains sort of lighting up as times are tough when, in- when inflation is high and, 
interest rates go up, people are going to be shopping more at Dollarama and Dollar Tree and Winners and HomeSense and sort of all the what they call the discount stores or off-price retail channels. They're going to pick up uh, merchandise. And you're right, you can't buy them intentionally, you know, online. They want you to come in the store. And uh, and that's going to help them. But, uh, you know, e-commerce isn't going away. It's having a moment uh, down a down slope right now, but it'll come back again. It'll start growing again in about maybe a year. Or so once once the honeymoon with brick and mortar starts to subside. Well, I think it's also going to um, be a situation of, you know, what's more convenient for me as a consumer right now? If, if I, I need to get some groceries, I've only got an hour. I'm going to click online. Uh, pick out what I need, go pick it up, and then I'm on to the next thing. Exactly. Remember, we're in the summer months right now, too. So it's pretty easy to get in the car or hop on the bus and go to a store. In the winter, things might turn around a bit. People don't want to go out. The weather's ugly. You might rely on e-commerce a little more. Yeah. One of the things I've been hearing about is that grocery store chains have been hiking prices higher and faster than inflation. I even heard one call for a boycott of a chain next month. Yeah, there's, there was an interesting article on another media outlet uh, last week, the week before, and it did an analysis of uh, the gross margins of some of the grocers. And there's some hypothesis out there, probably with arguable in term. it's arguable in terms of whether there's a concrete proof, but there's some hypothesis out there that some of the grocers have taken more than just the cost increases, that they're increasing their retail prices even more. And uh, it's hard to sort of know, you know, they're denying it, it's hard to know. But uh, definitely they've been the target because they've made some really nice profits during the pandemic and even as we go through this cycle right now. So, you know, um, there, there's some of the targets, the easy targets that were that people pick on in terms of seeing their growth versus everyone tightening their own belt. So time will tell sort of how that happens. There's also a grocery code of conduct that's being worked on right now, which will be interesting to see how that develops in concert with this uh, the, this sort of social unrest. Well, when I heard about a call for a boycott of a chain next month, you know, Canada is not France. I don't think we have ever had an impactful boycott. Yeah, we're not really like that. I mean, we talk about boycotts. It's fun to put in the social media and sort of huff and puff. But you know what? Most consumers don't really boycott things that much. They talk about it. You know, it, the news cycle changes and they move on to something else and they realize they need that store anyway. So it's not really the solution, I think, is boycotting, although it gets some good press. Yeah, yeah, it does. I mean, you and I are talking about it now. That's right. <laughs> Bruce Winder <laughs> is a retail analyst. He's also co-founder and partner of the Retail Advisors Network. We were talking a little bit about the shopping mall experience. Um, you know, open-air malls, I think, are particularly uh, appealing, certainly at this time of year. There's usually an international conference, isn't it? The International Council of Shopping Centers. They yeah, get to, exactly. Are, are there any ideas of what's going to be happening? Because, I mean, you know, if you've been into a mall uh, in the last couple of years, l- there are a lot of empty stores. A lot of retailers have gone under. They are. And malls are very expensive to maintain because you have to air condition them in the summer. You have to heat them in the winter. There's all kinds of extra costs for closed malls. So you're, you're seeing a trend toward open-air malls where... And that's obviously very conducive to people who are still nervous about the pandemic. But um, yeah, you know what? All these things are on the table. There's also things called dark stores where they're converting some small stores uh, to warehouses and sort of just using it as a regional fulfillment center. So, you know, the whole the whole retail world is changing big time, especially as it relates to the physical footprint of brick and mortar. Yeah. If um, if costs are going up, prices at the grocery store, these uh, major companies are hiking their prices. But uh, what people are making uh, in terms of, uh, of any raise that they might be getting this year, that isn't going up. Uh, how long can we really withstand the, the inflationary prices? 
Uh, not that much longer, because that is one area where you're starting to see some unrest. You're seeing uh, more and more retailers uh, having union uh, unionized activity at their stores um, or their locations because consumer or workers just can't make money. They can't make ends meet. So they're demanding that, you know, retailers wage, raise wages. And that is something that is here. And, and, and it's just simple math. You know, if your wage goes up 5% and prices are up 8%, you're losing money every month. So it's something that you're going to see significant uh, unionization movements, social unrest as it relates to wages as well. Well, we saw a lot of the smaller retailers being forced to close, and now we've got rising inflation. What are we likely to see on the local level and then with regional and national chains? Yeah, I think you're going to see consolidation um, of industries. You know, you're going to see the bigger chains get bigger and some of the smaller companies will exit. They've already exited during the pandemic, but this might put them over the edge because government supports have been wound down. You know, consumers are buying differently. Costs are going up for them, wage costs, material costs. You'll probably see a number of bankruptcies, whether they report formally as a bankruptcy or not remains to be seen. A lot of them don't. And hopefully what they'll do is, is sort of, uh, you know, uh, relive, relive through the ashes, rise from the ashes and open up another, another business. But you are going to see a number of businesses uh, shutter and uh, you're going to see consolidation of the industry where the big get bigger. If I can go back to uh, the, the shopping mall situation uh, for a second, when I've been down in the States, and obviously this was before COVID, one of the trends that I noticed was um, a large complex that was almost a city within itself. So you would have retail on the main floor, you'd have some office space, and then you'd have uh, condos or, or housing uh, rising up from that. I haven't seen a lot of that happening in Canada, or am I just ahead of the curve? It's on the way. So some of it is starting to be developed. It's on the way. It's called mixed use, and it's incredibly popular right now. So, you know, if you look at a lot of the sort of legacy shopping malls, what developers are doing is using the parking lot to build condos, uh, changing the mall configuration, putting condos above the mall, changing everything. So you're seeing more and more of these malls morph into uh, condominiums or townhomes, as as well as some business offices, as well as some retail. And it's really the way of the future. You'll start to see that uh, live in Canada soon, if it's not already there. Well, one of the things that I know, certainly in the Hamilton market, uh, there was an attempt anyway. There's a, a mall up on the mountain that's called Lime Ridge Mall, um, mm-hmm. and it's Cadillac Fairview. And they were trying to work a deal with uh, the Hamilton Bulldogs to put an arena on that footprint and incorporate sure. that into the mall experience. Sadly, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen now. But uh, but is that the sort of thing that you're talking about? Absolutely. If you look at West Edmonton Mall, which is one of the, the you know the biggest malls in the world, that has a, a hockey arena right in the middle of the skating rink, right in the middle of the mall. And that's exactly what you're seeing. You're seeing malls have to get creative to bring in traffic from other sources and try to get experiences. So a family you know gets up in the morning or whoever gets up in the morning and says, "Let's go to the mall." It's not just about buying products. It's about experiencing things, getting something to eat, doing some skating, you know, working out, whatever it is. So the mall is more of a market destination for your lifestyle. That's what you're really seeing with this uh, mixed-use approach. And when we were talking earlier about uh, the online versus in-store retail experience, there have been some online retailers that are trying out that retail experience as well. 
It is. It's pretty common knowledge now that if you're a pure online player, like they, we call them digital, uh, digitally native brands, you know, they may have started with a makeup line online. Uh, there's been a lot of proof that if they can get into retail, either as a wholesale arrangement with another retailer or open up their own store, it significantly increases their overall business. So a lot of uh, pure play e-commerce companies are adding select, and I say select, brick and mortar stores to help their overall business. As we are uh, likely to go through uh, some troubled times, I mean, you know, when they say inflation is going to be around for 18 months, they really mean 24. And if they say exactly. 24, they probably mean 36. Um, yep, sure. <laughs> can, uh, can I tap on you for some free advice for uh, those mom and pop shops? Um, anything on the local level about how they can uh, navigate the waters that we're going to be going through for the next several, several years, likely? Yeah, it's tough for them. I mean, the only thing they really have that can they can use to differentiate themselves is service. So if they can offer services that aren't available through the discounters. The other thing is that personal relationship. So creating personal relationships with your customers. The third thing they can do is customization. So if they can customize their offers, a lot of companies can't do that. The big chains can't customize. So it gives them an advantage if they, and differentiator if they can do that. Well, that's interesting you should say that. My uh, my father-in-law, who has since passed away, uh, he actually ran um, the most profitable grocery store uh, per square foot uh, in Stony Creek, and it was called Colbert's. And uh, he did it by customer service. That was one of the key things that he did and that he maintained was that it was so important um, for you to make sure that you treat that customer who comes through the door um, in in a very special and personal sort of way, that it was a real cornerstone of his business. Yeah, sorry to hear of his passing, but yeah, that's definitely something, you know, uh, he got it right. That That's the formula. That That's one of the only ways you can do it is to create that customer service that just blows customers away. They feel so good about themselves and, and, the, and how the store makes them feel that they're going to come back. And you know what? They'll pay a little more in some cases, especially if you have a, more of an affluent customer. And it depends on the category. But yeah, you know what? He's He did a great job because groceries are real tough to do that. So, I mean, hats off to him because that that's the real formula to, to win when you're up against some of these giants. I guess that's a good thing for all of us to remember. Bruce, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, appreciate it. Have a great day. Take care. Thanks, you too. And I'll try to have a little retail therapy in the mix at some point in the next day or so. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. As you drive around, you may have noticed this for yourself. There is a lot of speeding going on, and in some cases, extreme speeding. In others, it's outright street racing. You best believe the OPP has taken notice. Here's OPP Deputy Commissioner Rose DeMarco. During May and June of this year, we collectively laid 35 criminal code charges, such as impaired driving by both drugs and alcohol and dangerous operation of a motor vehicle. An additional 104 charges were laid for speeding and 20 charges for stunt driving, contrary to Ontario's Highway Traffic Act. Police also laid 261 charges for other offences related to the Highway Traffic Act, Provincial Offences Act, Cannabis Act, and Liquor Licence Act. And the OPP think they know what's behind all of this. Joining us now is OPP Sergeant Carrie Schmidt. Sergeant Schmidt, thank you so much for taking time this morning. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So what is motivating this? What's behind all of this? Well, I guess it's the thrill, it's the excitement. Uh, people are out there it, with their uh, cars. It, it doesn't need to be an exotic sports car or a fancy muscle car. Uh, people are out there uh, trying to show off what 
think they can do uh, against other drivers. And uh, obviously, maybe a little bit of uh, bravado and uh, uh, machoism, and they're trying to figure out how they can, uh, you know, be the 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 top car on the street. Well, I'll tell you, you know, it is super dangerous and obviously illegal. And we have been uh, called to so many of these tragic uh, outcomes when, you know, street racers crash. Uh, Just a few months ago, we had a a, a fatal ejection crash where uh, two uh, drivers racing uh, amongst uh, other traffic. One driver took an evasive turn, tried to get around traffic, hit the shoulder, hit the wall, lost control, uh, went out, uh, hit the ditch and rolled over. He was ejected and killed. Uh, you know, again, he, he leaves uh, leaves a wife and a baby uh, behind and uh, left to pick up the pieces. You know, we're just trying to have people understand the consequences for those kinds of behaviors uh, can be deadly. And there are plenty of options out there if you want to get out there and have some fun. It's just not on the road. you got to take it to a track. Well, one thing that I've noticed, and, and, you know, we've had to cover a lot of these stories, as you well know, um, over the last weeks, months, and years. Um, I've noticed the toll that it's really taking on police officers, because they have to be at these sites, and they have to tell the families what's happened. Well, the the notification to family next of kin is, is so heartbreaking because you know, you, you've been to the scene, you know what's going on, and very often even at the scene, uh, you'll be sitting there, it's quiet and eerie, uh, we're doing our evidence collection, and the cell phones that are still in the vehicle start ringing, and they, 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 they don't stop incessantly. They keep ringing and ringing and ringing, and you, can, you know for sure that the person calling the other end is beginning to panic. And, uh, and sadly, when all of a sudden they do see that uh, police, vehicle roll up on the driveway an officer gets out puts their hat on and and marches to the door um you know sometimes that is just you know their their heart will sink and even as the officer goes up you know their hearts are pounding because what they're about to tell the person on the other side of that door is going to change their life absolutely um when we're talking about street racing i mean i've seen on the highway because i drive in in the middle of the night and i've seen people on the highway you know that two people have sort of you know, looked at each other and said it's on and, and they're off and yeah. running. But but there are also really organized events. There are, and, and that's what, with Project Buccaneer, which you just heard uh, our Deputy Commissioner speaking about, uh, those charges laid specifically to that project and uh, trying to interrupt, dismantle, and, uh, you know, you know, take down these organized uh, criminal rings that are doing these uh, races on these highways. You know, there's, there's money and stakes involved. There's pride and ego involved as well, obviously. And, uh, you know, that kind of behavior is, is what is so deadly. And it's not just those participants that are at risk. It's those uh, innocent bystanders that are that happened to be in the area at the time. And, and we've heard so many stories countless times where, uh, you know, a family or a couple, you know, going out for an evening dinner gets get hit by a, a high-flying vehicle that, uh, you know, had no chance to escape because they were racing either themselves or racing against uh, other people on the roads. The, the unpredictability, uh, the unknown um, you know, circumstances around the next bend, over the next crest. You know, there's a stop sign ahead. You don't see pedestrians, but all of a sudden someone comes running out uh, and you've got no time to react when you're going two, three times the speed limit. You know, we're stopping vehicles regularly going 200 kilometers an hour. You know, it's absolutely insane. 
Well, one thing I've seen, and obviously this is mostly in summer, um, there are guys who rent exotic cars out. They go out on the highway, and it's like they've been cast in Fast and Furious. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? There's companies out there that you can rent a car. Hey, you can go out and go for i got no problems with people going out and enjoying beautiful cars, going for a cruise, doing uh, doing what they love to do, and having that open open road in front of you and the hair blowing in the breeze if it's convertible top-down or wherever. But, uh, you know, once you start uh, pushing to the limit, that's where we have uh, exception. And, you know, we, ha- we have our aircraft up in the sky doing traffic enforcement as well, and we just did, uh, you know, some enforcement up on Highway 403 through Oxford and Brant County, and uh, we had a motorcycle there doing high rates of speed, and as the officers attempted to make that traffic stop, the motorcycle took off. Um, you know, we didn't pursue, uh, you know, because it wasn't probably safe to do so, and we actually had eyes in the sky, and those eyes in the sky kept a watchful eye on this uh, rider until he went and hit his motorcycle in his back of his property, went inside, and uh, moments later, officers showed up on his doorstep uh, asking him uh, what was going on. He was arrested, vehicle was impounded, and he had no idea he was under the watch of an aircraft uh, the entire time. I bet he was pretty surprised when you knocked on his door. Oh, you think? Absolutely. <laughs> so, you know, again, that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to do. We, we it, It's about public safety for us. You know, we want everyone to to be able to, you know, get to where they're going safely. You know, we need people to share the road responsibly. And it's not just the extreme street racers. We see those people all the time. Uh, But, you know, ourselves, I think we need to do a little bit of a, you know, a self-check on ourselves. You know, where are we driving? What's our speed? Are we, uh, you know, sitting in the left lane, preventing other people from passing on the left? And and now they're passing to the right, and now it looks like they're weaving through traffic, but maybe they're weaving through traffic because, you know, some driver, you know, thinks that doing 115 in the left lane, now 115 is speeding, but uh, if you're not actually passing someone, you should be turning out to the right and allow other traffic to flow. We'll get the speeders. Uh, it's not... I don't want other people to think that they have the ability to control rate of speed. And if I'm doing 115, that's good enough for everybody. And, and, uh, and that's what causes a lot of road rage as well. Yeah, you were talking uh, about the eye in the sky. I think I saw that video. Wasn't it posted? Yeah. Yeah, it was posted on our HS Highway Safety Division, OPPHSD, Twitter page, Facebook, Instagram, and so on. So you'll, you'll see that. I know we're talking a lot about, uh, you know, street racing and Project Buccaneer was part of that. You know, again, we see these people taking over uh, intersections, parking lots, you know, again, driving in very reckless manners, you know, shooting off fireworks, using their cell phones, and recording everything for their viral video, but they're standing right in harm's way. And we've seen other cars get hit. We've seen other people get hit. We've had people get injured in these uh, situations. And obviously the property owners, you know, don't take kindly when they leave uh, garbage and rubble and and they light fires on properties and parking lots. Like It's a complete disregard for, for the respect of uh, landowners. And obviously, that kind of behavior it, it will never be tolerated uh, by us. And, and that's what we're doing this weekend and every weekend. Uh, you know, we're going to be out looking for those high-risk driving behaviors. And, and stunt driving and aggressive driving is certainly, you know, one of our top priorities uh, when we're out there doing traffic enforcement. We're speaking with OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt, and we're talking about road safety in general. Um, I remember seeing a lot of videos, maybe last summer, could be a couple of summers ago, about large groups of uh, motorcyclists who were kind of taking over highways. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and, and we we've seen those uh, behaviors, and, and I've seen them myself in personal vehicles, and, and, and in some cases, you know, some of these riders themselves are actually looking to get the attention of the police because uh, they want to have a little cat and mouse chase. You know, we're not we're not looking to uh, you know make the highways even more dangerous by drivers, you know, trying to you know have a you know, a, a chase or a pursuit on, on the road. You know, we're going to look at all the circumstances and we're going to try to follow up and use our intelligence uh, to uh, find these uh, drivers and riders and culprits involved in this behavior. Uh, but again, a complete disregard and disrespect of, uh, of the roads and how driving is a privilege. And, and I, I wish everyone w- would understand that. This morning, I was over at a, uh, at a parking lot. We were doing a, an auto slalom, autocross, you know, some parking lot uh, time racing in a technical course, which was sanctioned. And it was a ton of fun. And and I think if drivers have that kind of experience and know those kinds of opportunities are available, come on down and, and experience it. And if you think you're a good driver, I think you've got a lot to learn. Because uh, even for myself, when we're going for a ride with these uh, professional drivers, I was uh, in awe of uh, their skills. And I know I wouldn't be able to hold a candle to some of the skills that they have. And, uh, yeah, so we're going to be doing a little show and shine uh, down at Vaughn Mill Bass Pro Shops this evening. Anybody who wants to come down is very welcome to come and join us. It's going to be a static event, but, hey, we all love cars, love looking at them. But if you're going to be driving them in an aggressive manner, uh, you got to take it to the track. Let's go for a cruise, but, uh, you know, not in the manners that we see <laughs> on our posts when drivers are going 200-plus kilometers an hour. Well, that's one of the things I was wondering about. I mean, if you're going to go to the expense of renting some of these exotic cars, why not go to, like, I think it's Delaware Speedway, Speedway in London or Cayuga Park yep. and just have at it? Yeah, well, you know, I was with Dove this morning from a Toronto Motorsports Park in Cayuga, and for $40, you can go down to uh, their track and do uh, drag strip uh, racing. You can do um, uh, the circuit track, the road course, and go through all the twisties uh, on, a, on a closed course, safer environment. There's always going to be a risk with, uh, with high speeds and so on, but you're in a much better facility, a much better environment. Go out and have some fun and, and experience it. And once you've had those thrills, I think you'll come to your senses and realize that, you know what, you know, racing beside transport trucks and minivans and pedestrians really doesn't uh, cut it. And, uh, you know, if they think every red light is the starting light for uh, a race, you know, you've got something else uh, coming. And eventually your luck's going to run out and either someone's going to get hurt or killed uh, or you're going to find some red and blue lights flashing behind you. Sergeant, about an hour ago, OPP Western Region was holding a news conference about a big increase in serious and fatal motorcycle collisions um, so far this year. What can you tell me about that news conference and what they want, the message they want to get across? Well, I know in in Western Region, Western Ontario, they've seen the biggest percentage of our motorcycle fatalities. We've had 25 riders die already this season uh, in motorcycle crashes. And uh, the biggest demographic is the 45 to 54-year-old riders uh, riding. Now, I don't know if that's because they represent the largest percentage of actual motorcycle riders themselves, uh, but uh, you know, there's a vast majority of our people in that age demographic who are uh, getting injured or, or killed in these wrecks. You know, we've seen a lot of uh, aggressive driving. And on that video that I posted, you'll see our, our eye in the sky watching uh, some uh, daytime footage of this motorcycle that was driving aggressively. But you'll also see uh, nighttime shots and motorcycles lane splitting, doing wheelies, uh, you know, driving in, in massive groups, shutting down the road, 
to allow other riders up ahead to start doing their stunts and wheelies. And, and that is, you know, what is, you know, again, frustrating for us to see that kind of behavior and deadly because I know we have been to far too many fatal crashes involving motorcycles and that kind of uh, action. Again, uh, your, uh, your luck will run out at some point and that's where we need uh, people to realize the consequences uh, for those behaviors. Well, and in um, a disturbing number of stories that we've had to cover over the last several years, it seems to be a number of motorcycle crashes that occur in rural areas at what should be uh, four-way stops or in situations where the driver of a vehicle um, has not obeyed the stop sign and has yeah. rolled through an intersection and has hit a motorcycle. Do you know what? A lot of crashes, you know, again, I'm not sure if it's, if it's half or what, what 40 or, or percentage-wise of where the motorcyclist was not at fault, that they were totally in the right, uh, but because they're a vulnerable road user, just like a pedestrian and a bicyclist, motorcyclists themselves don't have that protection of a safety cage around them. And so if there is a collision, uh, they're the ones, regardless of who's right or wrong, they're the ones who are going to pay the price. Uh, and uh, a lot of uh, left turns and, and drivers coming out of intersections, private drives, you know, making uh, making a turn in front of oncoming traffic, and uh, they see a, a headlight off in the distance, and they assume it's a car, you know, far, far away, and don't realize it's a motorcycle, you know, closing in on them uh, very quickly. And regardless of their speed, if they don't judge that closing distance, and a car pulls out, there may be no escape route for these riders, and either they're going to dump the bike themselves, or they're going to go right over their handlebars, and and when they collide with a vehicle in their path. So we're asking drivers as well, obviously, to be extra vigilant. Take that second to make that double check to make sure your turns and lane change and movements can all be done safely. Um, because uh, if you make a change uh, in your in your driving and there's a motorcycle behind you, they may not be able to uh, compensate in time uh, if it happens unexpectedly. So you know we really need to be careful and watch uh, watch what we're doing. Share the road again responsibly and and just be alert. You know, driving is an active activity, and you you need to have your head on a swivel, and you need to have your wits about you. So obviously, that's where it comes to putting down distractions and really focusing on the road. Yeah, and don't be thinking just because you've got a really souped-up car, no OPP officer can catch you. Exactly. We got we got planes and we got radios and uh, you know we got people uh, doing some amazing police work out there. So again, but we need to uh, get that message out. And I, I thank all your listeners and everyone who who are uh, safe and responsible drivers. Uh, share this message and and again, just be mindful of your driving. If, if you're going down the road, uh, keep scanning your mirrors. Uh, stay out of that left lane unless you're actually passing somebody. If someone's behind you, move over. Let them go by. It'll just allow for a much freer and easier flow of traffic, and everyone will get to their destinations. Sergeant, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been my pleasure. Okay, and hopefully you're not busy this weekend. That would be a really nice change. Have a safe, long weekend, and again, uh, slow down, move over. If you see those uh, stopped emergency vehicles, police cars, fire trucks, tow trucks, uh, just uh, watch out. That's where we're uh, doing our, our, um, our work, and you know, for all emergency and first responders, uh, that's their office. We've been talking about road safety with OPP Sergeant Carrie Schmidt. I'm Shona Thompson. This is The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML in Hamilton, 980 CFPL in London. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You know, international relations, it's a very interesting thing because sometimes you have to kind of look at what's going on in the background, in the subtlety of things, as opposed to what 
countries and world leaders are actually saying. And there may be some signs, rather, that things may not be quite they seem in Russia. The Kremlin is again shutting down rumors that Russian President Vladimir Putin's health is deteriorating. The Kremlin saying Russian President Putin is in good health amid rumors the 69-year-old might be ill. This after he canceled a foreign trip. Putin also coughed during a public appearance on Wednesday. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov saying, quote, everything is fine with his health. You know that Ukrainian information specialists and American and British ones have been throwing out various fakes about the state of the president's health in recent months. These are nothing but fakes, end quote. Inez de la Quatera, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. One of our guests yesterday said that the Russian bank governor made a speech that didn't quite toe the Putin line, that everything was just fine despite the invasion. Former Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev has also made some comments that Putin may not have liked. But I wanted to know if these are signs that we should be paying attention to. Or really, is it just wishful thinking? Joining us now with his insights is Oral Brown, professor of international relations and a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. Good morning. Good morning. So are these indicators or just things that we'd like to see? We don't know. And this tells us something about the opaqueness of the system in Russia, one that is becoming ever more repressive. The role of the security services, especially the FSB, is now more not only like that of the KGB, but uh, more like that of the NKVD. It is uh, to terrorize the opponents and to beat into submission of the population. And sometimes it uh, hides weaknesses rather than strength. So analysis by people like Tim Snyder may be correct that uh, Putin is weakening, but the question is, how much, how soon, Uh, and we are in a way almost uh, back to Kremlinology, which was a kind of reading of the tea leaves. That's, I think, a really good way of putting it. Uh, We heard at the outset of this invasion that Russia thought that they'd be in Kyiv in a matter of days. That obviously didn't happen. What impact has this had on Putin's grip on power? So far, it has not uh, uh, diminished his power because... uh, He controls the security services, he controls the military, and he has eliminated uh, a good deal of civil society organizations uh, as well as political opponents that were either killed or are sitting in in jail. The media has been utterly devastated. The depression is uh, just horrific uh, for anyone uh, who is uh, in uh, in the media. And uh, most uh, Russians get their news from television and that is consists of relentless propaganda. But it is a characteristic, and I've said it on uh, various radio programs, of uh, dictatorial regimes that they look strong and stable until all of a sudden, all of a sudden they are no longer strong and st- stable. Now, we also have to be very careful that sometimes we just have a kind of snapshot of what is happening rather than understand the whole, whole process. In terms of the process, uh, Vladimir Putin has failed strategically. They have not achieved the goals of taking over over Ukraine. That was clearly the goal that they outlined at the beginning. And also to damage, perhaps fairly damage NATO, because we must not forget that Vladimir Putin said not only that Ukraine was not a real state, that Ukrainians were not a real people, that the leadership in Kiev 
who consisted of Nazis or neo-Nazis, drug-addled neo-Nazis, as he put it. But he also demanded that NATO should fundamentally restructure itself where all of the things that were done post 1997 in terms of enlargement, in terms of rotation of troops, of integration of the former members of the Warsaw Pact, that needs to be reversed. So in that he has failed, but he has had some tactical successes. So I think we have to find the right kind of balance between hope and reality. And this is why it is so essential to appreciate the fact that nothing is predetermined what happens both externally and even what happens internally is dependent to a significant degree on what occurs on the ground in Ukraine, especially what happens militarily and what the West is doing to stand up to Vladimir Putin and to help Ukraine. And in those terms of helping Ukraine and standing up uh, to Vladimir Putin, the West has done less than he could. Well, what would you like to see the West do? Why don't we start with what Ukraine is asking? They are on the ground, the Ukrainian leadership, and they are saying that they're not getting the heavy armaments they need. They're not getting them fast enough. They're not getting the training. Look at Germany. Germany claims uh, that they have now dramatically turned around their foreign policy. Uh, They call it a Zeitwende, a new era. There has to be huge new spending, uh, 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 spending on, on the military, and and uh, a change in policy. And yet, uh, Germany was lobbying Canada, pressuring us to deliver the uh, turbine for Nord Stream 2, or for not, because the Russians have cut back on uh, the uh, uh, supply of energy dramatically to Germany, which allowed itself to become dependent. They had put uh, profits before anything else for, for, for decades. And uh, when it came to supplying the Ukrainians with help, they sent over three, three, after months of promising, three anti-aircraft tanks, three Gepards. Uh The frustration level with Germany in Ukraine is tremendous. And when Vladimir Putin tested uh, uh, Germany, and uh, by implication, they also tested Canada as to whether we would cave into their demands, such as uh, returning the turbine. We, we failed. Um, it's interesting because also earlier this week, one of the things that uh, this program was exploring was uh, the move by the European Union to basically brace itself for a very long, cold winter and to prepare for that, to try not to be as controlled by Russia and its gas supplies as it had been in the last several months. Well, first of all, Germany, which is the largest economy, uh, should never have been in this position because it's not a surprise that they are dependent on on, uh, uh, Russian energy. They were warned about that and they ignored it. So when a president of the United States said to the Germans that you will be dependent and the Russians could manipulate in terms of energy, the then foreign minister left at a meeting. And uh, there are all sorts of differences among the various members of the EU. So, yes, they are talking about being able to be more resilient. But if you look at statements by Viktor Orban of Hungary, they are uh, very, very supportive of Russia. They basically, uh, the leadership in Hungary is saying uh, Russia should be appeased. Uh, then we have statements made by uh, 
uh, President Macron of France, who said that Russia must not be humiliated. This is a country that has engaged in international terrorism through a war of aggression and of domestic terrorism uh, against its own own people. So the mixed signals are not exactly helping. And yes, if the Europeans do implement a policy where they can resist Russian pressure, that would help. But uh, so far, the record of the Europeans is not exactly a great one. And sadly, President Biden has not provided much leadership. Uh, he prides himself on building a consensus, but you should not confuse consensus and leadership. And the approach by the Biden administration seems to be that they do not want Ukraine to lose. But on the other hand, they do not want to enable Ukraine to win either, because that would be, in their eyes, a bit risky. And uh, we need to recognize what uh, Gary Kasparov, uh, one of the world's greatest chess players historically has said, and also an opposition leader, that Vladimir Putin is not playing chess, is playing poker. A good deal of it is bluff. And the West has the capacity. After all, Russia is only a remnant of a superpower, not a superpower, except for nuclear weapons. And uh, if we don't stand up, the goals from Vla for Vladimir Putin do not stop at Ukraine. Well, when you say it's not a superpower except for nuclear weapons, that's a, bitty, a pretty big proviso. I think that's the big fear here, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, there's a misunderstanding, uh, you know, of uh, what re Russian capabilities are. No one wants a nuclear conflict, but neither does Vladimir Putin. He is not a fanatical theological leader who believes that the reward will come in an afterlife. He is a corrupt politician who loves the good life, uh, who is surrounded by uh, corrupt uh, uh, oligarchs. Uh, he wants uh, his family, his grandchildren to live well. And so uh, deterrence, nuclear deterrence works, has worked uh, during the Cold War, it is working now. And the West cannot afford to allow Vladimir Putin to use nuclear blackmail. Outside of uh, these nuclear weapons, Russia is not in the same league as, as NATO. The total gross domestic product of Russia is only roughly that of Italy's. Uh, they export mainly energy, about 60%. Uh, Russia is not really a modern state in many respects. The military turned out to be corrupt and ineffective. The vaunted Russian forces were defeated around Kiev. They have not been able to achieve the strategic objectives. Now, this is not to underestimate the devastation that they have been able to cause and the horrific suffering that they have inflicted on the Ukrainian population and continue to do so. But it is not that the Russian armed forces cannot be stopped or that Vladimir Putin cannot be forced at the very least into a compromise that will be favorable to Ukraine rather than appeasing and emboldening him. And for that, you need leadership from the United States. You need the Germans to really change policy and to uh, uh, appreciate the fact that they had an awfully good ride for decades uh, where they took advantage of cheap energy while other people paid for security. Uh, and so it's time the policies were truly revised. And we need to understand that it is not only about what Vladimir Putin is doing in Europe, but he is closely allied with China. And China has interests in the South uh, 
Asian seas where it's very aggressive and in Taiwan. And if Russia prevails somehow, that will also embolden China. So there is a great deal at stake. So when we talk about Vladimir Putin weakening, we have to go back to what was actually a strategy that was outlined by Boris Johnson, which was that the Russian invasion must not only fail, but must be seen to fail. So perception is crucial because failure by Vladimir Putin may well bring about the kind of changes domestically in Russia that are essential to make Russia into a responsible modern state which cares more about its own people than the ambitions of a dictator. We're speaking with Oral Brown, who's a senior member of the Monk School of Global Affairs and a professor of international relations at the University of Toronto. Um, We've been hearing more about uh, the deal to ship grain out of Ukraine that involves Turkey and Russia, that Russia is going to allow that to happen. But I don't believe any Russian deal till it's completed. Uh, And isn't throttling grain part of the Russian plan to retaliate against Western sanctions? Russia has used every single weapon at its disposal and creating food insecurity has been employed by Russia as a weapon. At the same time, uh, Russia also wants to sell grain. They are a major exporter of grain. And so uh, if they do not allow any grain to be sent from Ukraine, it would be more difficult for them to sell their own grain including grain that they confiscated from from Ukraine. There's evidence that they actually Russia has stolen vast quantities of grain from Ukraine that they have been selling. But the record of uh, Russia is not one uh, where one uh, can say that they are trustworthy. Let's not forget that uh, the day after this agreement was reached, the Russians were sending missiles onto Kiev, onto rather Odessa, uh, I meant, uh, which is a key port on the Black Sea from which Ukraine which ship grains. So, uh, in a sense, uh, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Will those very large quantities of grain stored in Ukraine that must be shipped out? Because there's a huge problem, uh, partly world food security, but partly that... Uh, those uh, vast silos in Ukraine that are storing uh, grain, they have to be emptied for the new harvest. Otherwise, uh, those uh, uh, food supplies will, will, will rot. So there's a, an urgency to this. And I think pressure has to be maintained on Russia to allow the large outflow of uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, grain exports. Can I ask you about the the deal that we heard about yesterday? Um, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken announced uh, that a deal is on the table for the return of U.S. women's basketball star Brittany Griner and an American teacher, Paul Whelan, in exchange for a Russian arms dealer. What do you make of that? Clearly, the United States wants to get all of its citizens who are being held prisoner under one uh, um, kind of... uh, pretense or another on the part of of Russia, Uh, but uh, Russia will extract as many concessions as possible. So the deal that has been offered to Russia is quite a good one because uh, it would uh, allow them to get back uh, people who really have committed terrible crimes uh, 
uh, one of these individuals who uh, is being offered as a trade is known as the merchant of death. Uh, uh, and in exchange, they would release uh, a basketball a player who just had a, a small quantity of, uh, of uh, marijuana. Uh, but so far, uh, the deal has not been executed. And uh, the Americans have been taken a bit aback that uh, the Russians did not rush to accept this deal, but they should not have been surprised because Vladimir Putin likes to play mind games. And what he has learned is that he has been very good at manipulating and intimidating the Biden administration. All the conversations that he had with Mr. Biden, he came away emboldened. Um, uh, Blinken is also saying that he's expecting to meet with uh, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. Well, I'm sure that, uh, uh, um, you know, any meeting has the potential to help, but we also have to be realistic. Uh, uh, Sergei Lavrov is a messenger. He doesn't make policy. And we are in a situation where any significant policy and releasing uh, uh, uh an American, has now uh, come to mean that Vladimir Putin is directly involved. It is a decision by, by Vladimir Putin. Power has become so utterly concentrated in the hands of Vladimir Putin. And that is both a strength in a way of being able to make quick decisions, but it's also a vulnerability because if Putin goes, then there could be really dramatic transformations within the Russian uh, system because of uh, all that concentration of power. Uh, if we can get back to the uh, the invasion of Ukraine, and we only have a couple of minutes left, this is a fascinating conversation. I've been hearing estimates and uh, and pundits say things like, you know, they're expecting the war to be over, say, in December. I have heard some really optimistic uh, projections that it could end as early as next month because of um, some of the things that Russia has left behind, that their uh, supplies and uh, military equipment are in such poor shape that there is no uh, prospect for them to be able to win this uh, at all, let alone in the short order. They have not won strategically so far Russia, and it's clear that they have incurred very significant losses. The question is, how significant are those losses? What is the level of exhaustion of the Russian military at, at this point. And so uh, when we hear the American intelligence services say that there may be as many as 75,000 or 80,000 Russians, Russian soldiers killed or wounded, which would be a very large percentage of the invading force, then in many militaries that would mean a collapse, but it doesn't work necessarily the same way in a dictatorship because uh, someone like Vladimir Putin is much more willing to expand lives than a government that has to respond to the wishes of people that has to stand for genuine elections. But nonetheless, even dictatorial systems, and right now, Russia, in many ways, domestically, when we look at what is happening inside Russia, it is moving from an authoritarian system to a totalitarian system. Uh, so it's very dangerous for the Russian people. But internationally, this is a time both of opportunity and danger. There's an opportunity for Ukraine to put much more pressure, to cause much more devastation to the Russian armed forces and take territory back. But there is a danger of failure as well. The Ukrainians uh, seemingly are preparing 
to take back territory in the Kherson Oblast. If they're able to do that, that would be a huge uh, tactical as well as psychological blow to Russia. But if they fail, and let's not forget that Ukraine has also suffered grievous losses, not just among the civilian population, but they've lost a lot of their military as well, then that would give new opportunities for Russia as well. And this is why nothing is predetermined. It is precisely why it is so essential that the West stay focused, that we provide Ukraine with more uh, heavy weapons, uh, with more training, because this is what they need and this is what is required. If you want the war to end faster and to end in terms of uh, uh, that which is just and acceptable uh, to Ukraine, then I think that is what the West needs to do. Well, and given the impact that uh, this prolonged uh, invasion is having on the world economy, on inflation, and uh, and really hardship for a lot of people around the world. I think there's going to be more support for uh, a greater input and support for Ukraine in the months and weeks to come. I think that that would be a wise policy. But at the same time, we also have to appreciate that, especially in parts of Europe, there are those uh, leaders and those political parties in France, for example, uh, on the far left and the far right, that uh, want to do exactly the opposite, that basically want to reduce help to Ukraine and cave into Russia. It will be interesting to see what happens next, sir. I thank you so much for your insight. Thank you for having me on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.